welcome to episode 58 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, uh, I'm Stuart Baker. Uh, I uh, um, am doing this uh, remote from Austin, where I'm attending South by Southwest. Uh, uh, I'll give you... Uh, uh, travel tips uh, later for people who want to come here, but uh, uh, my principal tip is if ever there was a, um, an event made for Airbnb, this is it. Uh, uh, you'll never find a hotel within uh, 40 miles of Austin if you wait until the last month, so uh, um, Airbnb will get you something cheaper and more uh, centrally located. Uh, uh, so this uh, Steptoe Cyber Law Broadcast uh, Brought to you by Airbnb. Uh, I'm joined today by um, Michael Vadis, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in Steptoe's New York office. Uh, uh, Mike, uh, what do you think is the story of the week? Oh, I think it has to be how the HBO documentary The Jinx has uh, led to the arrest of Robert Durst for one of the uh, three murders he apparently committed. Yeah, not very cyberish, but uh, certainly media-ish. That's pretty amazing. Uh, it'll just uh... I think it sets a standard that we should aspire to. I mean, I think if we can if we can out a Chinese uh, hacker or uh, or some other cyber espionage agent on on this podcast, uh, that would be a pretty good achievement for us. That's it. That's it. Uh, who is that uh, really annoying woman uh, that we could aspire to be? Uh, you mean uh, Janine Pirro, the uh, former DA for Westchester County? No, no, though there's a woman who goes on on TV and says, "Oh, they did it, and they were there." Oh, Nancy Grace. It was the voice. That <laughs> That's it. it. Away. That's it. There we go. I could, I could, I could be uh, uh, the Nancy Grace of uh, the podcast world. All right, Jason, thank you for jumping in. Jason is formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw criminal uh, computer crime co- prosecutions, among other things, and is now doing criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe. So, uh, uh, Jason, what do you think is the story of the week? Um, probably the fact that Indiana and UCLA made the NCAA tournament. Uh, despite lousy seasons, um, and the Duke was still a number one seed. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, this is this is the this is the part of the the time of the year where I have to pretend that I care about sports. So uh, uh, that's very interesting. Uh, Stephanie Roy is also joining us. <laughs> <laughs> that was very convincing, by the way. <laughs> Nancy Grace would have sold it more than that. <laughs> that's right. She would have said, "Yeah, which of them is a murderer? There's got to be a murderer on this on the uh, court right now." Uh, we're also joined by Stephanie Roy, a partner in Steptoe's Telecom Internet and Media Practice here in D.C. Uh, Stephanie, uh, story of the week. It has to be for me. Uh, I'm going to have to break from form here and lead with something that we're going to talk about. It's got to be the release of the net neutrality order by the FCC, Stuart. We'll definitely come back to that one. Uh, And uh, our guest commentator who just joined us is uh, uh, Dr. Andy Osmond. Uh, uh, Andy is the Assistant Secretary for Cybersecurity and Communications at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, where one of his responsibilities is working with the private sector to mitigate cyber risks. he does uh, uh, work on best practices, risk assessments, uh, shares in threat information, response to incidents, uh, um, aspires, I think, to be the 911 of uh, uh, cyber incidents. Uh, and before that was at the White House uh, as a deputy to the cybersecurity coordinator, uh, um, helped to implement uh, the president's ex- executive order on improving critical infrastructure cybersecurity. So uh, he's got a long history in this administration and has uh, done a lot of things. Uh, Andy, welcome. Thank you, Stuart. It's great to be here. 
Do it, and uh, you're 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 welcome to uh, to pick a, a story of the week if you uh, if you like, uh, and you're welcome to uh, jump in on our uh, news roundup, but uh, uh, you're not obliged. All right. Well, listen, I'll jump in if the uh, spirit moves me. All right. Sounds good. Uh, uh, and uh, let's get started. Uh, so this week in uh, uh, news uh, or snooze, uh, uh, the net neutrality order we covered last week, and I uh, asked some questions before we could see the um, report about what it might mean uh, in terms of the authority of the FCC and the Public Safety Bureau and others over uh, uh, the cybersecurity practices uh, and maybe the wiretap practices of people who use the Internet. Uh, Stephanie has now read all 400 and some pages of the uh, uh, decision and the dissents, and uh, I thought I'd ask her to come back and tell me uh, uh, where I was right and where I was wrong in my assumption that uh, Kalia was going to get covered and that cybersecurity issues were going to have new authority uh, um, to uh, uh, under Title II. Yeah, well, I... As we all know, like it doesn't really expand the uh, Calia uh, because uh, Calia, even though it uses the same term telecommunications carrier as the Communications Act, the FCC uh, uh, back in the day, almost a decade ago now, uh, interpreted that to include uh, broadband access providers (ISPs). So they've had wiretapping requirements for some time, and the classification as common carriers doesn't seem to change or expand the scope of the authority or the requirements there. Where it does make it interesting, I think, is in the cybersecurity because Section 201B of the Communications Act requires um, communica- uh, common carriers to avoid unjust or unreasonable practices uh, with respect to their uh, services to consumers. And uh, the FCC said just this last October in an enforcement action against two uh, lifeline providers who are do it pursuant to our common carrier uh, classification, Terracom and Yortel America, found that their practice of storing consumer inf- uh, customer information on unprotected servers in plain text format without any encryption or password protection. Now, admittedly, this is an extreme case, but um, found on a 201B that it was an unjust and unreasonable practice. Uh, and in footnote, I think it is 74 of the decision um, that stated that the commission is committed to aggressive enforcement of unlawful practices related to cybersecurity and data protection. So this is a provision of the Communications Act that applies to all common carriers. Wow. So this is this is this they, what what they're really what what is the um, the most interesting possibility is that uh, they're going to borrow. The FTC's uh, approach to what's unjust and unreasonable and deceptive and unfair and just say uh, whatever the FTC would have considered unfair, we can consider uh, uh, unjust and unreasonable. Unre- we can uh, we can turn those words into anything we want them to mean if we think that uh, it's necessary to get more security. That, in fact, the uh, FCC's head of the Enforcement Bureau, Travis LeBlanc, has said that they interpret their authority under this section as coextensive with the FTC's authority, uh, unfair um, practices. And uh, one of the interesting things is, is in this report and order in which each of these entities, and they were, uh, um, this was a notice of apparent liability for forfeiture that came out last October, they refrained from imposing a forfeiture with respect to the this interpretation of 201B, although they imposed a forfeiture for other um, 
uh, provisions of the Communications Act or other practices under those provi- under this provision because they didn't think that there was um, sufficient notice that their interpretation of the uh, 201B uh, created liability here, but put common carriers on notice going forward um, that that they've that this is how they're interpreting this provision of the act and and this is what their obligations are going forward. Uh, importantly, I think it is important to understand the context. This, these two operators kind of had a history of behaving poorly, collecting for multiple multiple times for a single customer under oh, the yeah, lifeline yeah, no, program. I, it's it's really impossible to defend what they did, but you know the FTC has made a career, a, a, an entire um, jurisdiction, out of picking people who did something stupid and using their stupidity to set new standards for security that most of the rest of the world has to pay attention to because it's in a, a consent decree. Uh, um, so it, it's a, it's a pretty obvious business model for uh, the FCC to follow. Well, you know what they say about bad facts, what kind of law it makes. Yes. Um, well, I, uh, from the, uh, at the FTC, they say bad facts are, are, are what our entire jurisdi- jurisprudence <laughs> is based on. Uh, so, and, and meanwhile, if I understand this, the FTC is saying, oh, and we've got jurisdiction too, and AT&T is fighting about it um, in court. Uh, uh, Jason, uh, how does that tie into the discussion we just were having? Well, I, I think it's very closely related, uh, interrelated. You know, we talked a few weeks ago about the fact that the FTC was going after AT&T for throttling, which is the practice of uh, providing misleading information suggesting your data plan is unlimited when, in fact, when you exceed certain limits, you have your speed cut in half um, and other limits placed on your ability to use data. And now AT&T is challenging the FTC's authority, saying that this is now the FCC's turf, not the FTC's anymore, and, and arguing that since mobile data services qualify as common carriers, uh, they are subject to the FCC, but they're exempt from uh, jurisdiction of the FTC. And the FTC's response is you can be a common carrier for one purpose but not a common carrier for others, and that even if, if AT&T now belongs to the FCC going forward, um, it doesn't mean that they can't bring actions based on their past conduct before the FCC announced this, this change in position. Now, interestingly, during the um, uh, recent oral argument, AT&T told the court, that the FCC has notified them that it will bring its own action based on throttling. And if that happens, it will be interesting to see if that cuts the legs out for, uh, from the FTC's argument that it still has jurisdiction over, over prior conduct. Wow. So uh, I was going to say that maybe AT&T would find something to like in the uh, net neutrality order, but it sounds as though, uh, uh, no, it's just, it, it, maybe it cuts off FTC jurisdiction going forward, but it's not going to rid them of the FTC actions in the past or at least – that's the FTC's position. Well, they get to pick their poison. You could either be subject to an agency that's trying to make its name in the cybersecurity space or one that's already made its name in the cybersecurity space. Yeah, I would. I, I think I'd be pretty worried that the FTC, FCC law, it, uh, sooner or later is going to start issuing much more detailed guidance about what they think is uh, unjust and unreasonable uh, in these circumstances, uh, uh, and it'll be hard to, uh, to challenge that. So uh, the well, FTC uh, at least only – Stuart, yep. I might note that, that two commissioners did dissent from this notice uh, from last October, the two Republican commissioners. So, you know, things may change if there's a change over in, the, in who, can, who has the uh, majority of the commissioners at the agency. I'm sure we could get 47 senators to send a letter saying that this is only <laughs> going to last two years. <laughs> All right. Um, well, now that we've introduced a raw political note, uh, I guess I should uh, um, uh, cover, uh, because we've had some reader feel, feel bit, 
feedback suggesting that we should uh, uh, the Hillary email server uh, uh, question and in particular whether um, there was a security problem with uh, the emails that she stored there. And I have to say that, uh, you know, her claim that, well, there there's no known security intrusion is not particularly impressive in light of the fact that it's not clear how she would have known uh, whether there was a security uh, uh, breach. It uh, doesn't look as though there were a lot of security uh, auditing tools on this. Uh, and the most troubling uh, aspect of this from the point of view of whether it was designed with security in mind is apparently it didn't have an SSL cert for the first two or three months when it was in operation. Now, an SSL cert is necessary in order to create an encrypted pipe between your machine and the server in Chattaqua or wherever it is. Uh, I, and uh, uh, if you don't have an encrypted pipe, then every interaction you have with that server, uh, every email you send is sent in uh, plain text and can be read by anybody who happens to be wiretapping you. And since she apparently went to places like China and Israel and South Korea in those first couple of months and almost certainly read emails uh, uh, while she was there, any emails she downloaded or uh, sent in that period were uh, easily uh, seen by anybody who uh, uh, wanted to, uh, to read them, and certainly there would have been an effort to capture any signals that were coming out of the, uh, uh, the her plane or her, her headquarters. So that's really quite scary because it means that some very competent intelligence services that are uh, not above uh, uh, spying on the United States – had an early warning and an early taste of what they might be able to get out of this server. Uh, so I think, uh, uh, and actually, here's, here's, here's my theory, or at least my wild speculation. Um, obviously, whoever set this up didn't set it up to do SSL. Uh, why did they do it in March? Well, it's distinctly possible that uh, U.S. intelligence agencies monitoring their counterparts in, I don't know, Israel or uh, uh, South Korea or China or wherever else she went, noticed that they were actually reporting on Hillary Clinton's emails and said, you know, the uh, bureaucratic equivalent of WTF, uh, and raised it uh, uh, with somebody who then quickly got an SSL server. So I don't know that that's true. I have absolutely no reason for, uh, uh, to think that, except that it seems very funny that you'd set this up without a, cer a certificate and then get one just two months into her uh, her. Uh, service. So that's my that's my speculation for the week. I think it's worth pointing out, though, that we've seen a lot more sensitive information uh, leaked from the National Security Agency than we have from the Clinton server. So I think, you know, in all fairness, uh, we have to give her some credit for a great security she's had relative to <laughs> Well, I will say this. She, 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 she certainly picks her uh, uh, associates and puts uh, better and and puts greater fear in them uh, uh, about leaks than the National Security Agency was able to do. Okay, um, enough uh, enough gratuitous political commentary. Uh, the Wyndham case went to the Third Circuit. Uh, uh, did we learn anything from uh, uh, the filing so far? 
Um, I don't think we've learned anything. I, I, although I think that this story, which I've generally considered to be a snooze, is, is about to get more interesting. Um, as frequent listeners of the podcast know, and of course everyone is a frequent listener of the podcast, um, the district judge in New Jersey uh, certified an interlocutory appeal to the Third Circuit so that the circuit could address the question of the FTC's authority to bring enforcement actions for alleged failures to adopt reasonable cybersecurity when they haven't actually told anyone what reasonable cybersecurity is. And oral arguments were held in that case last week. It was reportedly a very hot bench, very engaged panel that asked really uh, intelligent uh, questions. And there were questions both about the FTC's authority to pursue remedies in federal court without having undertaking rulemaking, uh, uh, rulemaking process first. And there were more uh, practical questions about whether the, a finding of negligence by itself is enough to constitute an unfair trade practice, since that's the, the statutory hook that the FTC has used to bring these actions. Um, no telling when a uh, decision will come down, but when the decision comes down, it will officially move from snooze to news because it's a decision that will affect not just the outcome in this case, but it will affect the FTC's entire uh, cybersecurity agenda. So you can't tell from the argument uh, where they're likely to be going? Um, you know, there were there were questions that could be interpreted as sort of pointing in both directions. The the uh, the sense I got was that both of the advocates for the FTC and for Wyndham um, had underwent sort of aggressive questioning from people who were very well prepared. Okay. I, you know, well, I, think, I think coming out of this, Wyndham's got to feel pretty good because uh, they they have a very steep uh, hill to climb, and the argument apparently went twice the um, allotted length of time. Uh, and what I thought was most interesting was a lot of the questions focused not just on whether the FTC had the authority to determine what's an unfair practice, but whether this was a case that should have been brought uh, administratively in the in the first instance rather than in, in district court. Because the FTC has two choices. It can either bring an internal administrative action or it can go right to federal court and file suit. And so a lot of questions are were, were about, well, why didn't you do this administratively? Why did you bring it in federal court? And is that the right place to, to even make these determinations about whether a company had uh, inadequate security practices, which I think uh, to some extent may have come out of left field because that has not been the focus of the litigation uh, to date. So that there may be an, an interesting decision that no one really anticipated. You know, Mike, I thought on that on that point the Wyndham lawyer was, was interesting and was very candid in telling the court that he thought of that issue and didn't push it in the briefing because from, from Wyndham's point of view, they'd rather be in front of an Article Three judge than in front of, you know, the agency itself. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with Michael that uh, a hot bench is implicitly favorable to Wyndham because the FTC's best argument is there's nothing to see here. Just let's move on. It's the usual administrative practice of an agency that deserves deference. And if they're not getting that, then uh, they're, uh, they may still win, but it's going to be harder. Okay, well, speaking of uh, trying to get uh, – uh, determine uh, what's going on from the pleadings, uh, uh, Michael, uh, I see Microsoft – there's a uh, federal response, 75 pages or so, uh, in the Microsoft case. Uh, any any surprises in it? Uh, no real surprises. The, the government basically takes the position, uh, as it has all along, that really there's nothing extraterritorial about this case at all. You know, the, the, the uh, crux of Microsoft's argument is that the government is seeking data that's stored abroad, and therefore uh, it's seeking to apply a statute extraterritorially, and there's a presumption that laws don't apply extraterritorially unless uh, Congress specifically says so. And the government's saying, hey, 
There's nothing extraterritorial about this. You know, this is a, a crime under U.S. law that we're investigating. Microsoft is located here. This is the place that they would turn over the data. Um, so they're basically acting like this is not a big deal at all and that the search warrant is no different from a standard subpoena for a company's own uh, business records. These are all matters that Microsoft and, and all of its amici have hotly disputed. So it's it's almost surprising that the government hasn't really uh, taken uh, a more sophisticated approach to try to respond to some of Microsoft's arguments. It's just basically sticking to its guns on, on some pretty questionable points, in, in my view. But, you know, they convinced the district court judge, so we'll have to see what happens in the Second Circuit. So it's another uh, government uh, brief that says nothing to see here. Let's move on. Just give us the deference. Is, is you know we we know what we're doing, and uh, if there's a hot bench, they're, they're going to be in trouble. Okay. Uh, good news. Uh, uh, China has, at least according to uh, uh, U.S. sources. Uh, back down on that uh, terrorism law that uh, was going to require uh, backdoors from everybody who provided communications uh, capabilities uh, in China uh, for the time being. They uh, uh, did not do a third reading of their uh, uh, law, and while they could re- revive it at any time, and, and we've seen this before, they've uh, suspended stuff, uh, and uh, it just slowly drifts away, but the idea comes back uh, from time to time. Uh, but for now, it looks as though uh, uh, all of the lobbying uh, and the Guangxi uh, has uh, had an impact. Um, so that's uh, for U.S. companies doing business in China. That's good news. They can go back to worrying about Jim Comey. Um, oh, I, I, uh, last, last, uh, we, we got a, a request on this as well. Last time, uh, when we talked briefly, uh, Jason had said that he thought the freak vulnerability was the, uh, biggest story of the week, and I said, uh, you should never trust a, uh, vulnerability that has its own cute, uh, uh, uh abbreviation and, uh, even more so its own logo. Um, but Does I Does that apply to congressional legislation like the Patriot Act, though? <laughs> or uh, or or can spam? Uh, yeah, I I'm kind of hoping that uh, that uh, that trend has 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 peaked because uh, it, it it's aggravating in all respects uh, and uh, uh, it doesn't it doesn't actually even help the people who think that uh, uh, they've done a good job. But maybe maybe it helps them say I I passed the can spam law and people know immediately what the law was supposed to do. Uh, um, but, uh, yeah, I've never been thrilled with it because, of course, the actual name was written down. It's just ridiculous. Uh, uh, so let me, let me offer on, on, on Freak why I think it's, it's not quite as big a deal as everybody is making out. Uh, and I offer this with some tentativeness because, uh, you know, some of it requires a little bit of knowledge, uh, which could turn out, um, I don't have. Uh, but, <clears throat> Uh, first, there's an enthusiasm for this story that has nothing to do with the story. It, it, it is meant to be an object lesson in why you shouldn't uh, do things that uh, give the government better access to communications because they end up destroying everybody else's security. And it is certainly true that there are some very weak 40-bit and 512-bit uh, keys built into some servers because that's what you needed in 1995 to export the browser. Uh, and that policy was abandoned um, in the late 90s uh, and uh, uh, hasn't been in effect for 15 years, but for a variety of reasons, it's still possible 
to set up an SSL communication uh, using these uh, relatively weak keys. Um, a, they are breakable. If you've got uh, 10 or 12 hours, uh, uh, you can exhaust the keys and find out what, would, what key was used for the communication. Uh, uh, and so what freak, the freak vulnerability showed is that if you got in the middle between your target, the user, and the server they're going to, uh, you could um, take their request for encryption, for SSL encryption, and downgrade it to a request for these kind of crappy keys, and the um, uh, server would say, well, we don't get many requests for these crappy keys, but yes, I speak 40-bit encryption. Um, <clears throat> here's my 40-bit uh, um, uh, protocol. Uh, and then uh, you're in the middle. You pass that on to the uh, user, uh, user's computer, and the user's computer said, well, I asked for something better than this, but I can speak it. So, okay, let's do it with a 40-bit or a, a, if it's um, asymmetric 512-bit uh, encryption. Um, and then you end up having a communication with that particular server uh, that is breakable if you're willing to, to invest time uh, going back and <clears throat> you've recorded the session and then you go back, break the key, and decrypt the session. So it th sounds like a very bad thing, except, and this is uh, why I'm, I'm skeptical of it, it, it seems to require uh, that you first be in the middle. So if you're at home, the only people who are in the middle are, are your ISP. And if you're worried about your ISP, uh, then you've got many other problems uh, uh, than, than just this. The real worries are maybe if you're uh, abroad uh, and you don't have a government that you think will obey the, the rules uh, or that treats you as a proper intelligence target, or maybe more appropriately, if you're in a hotel or a um, uh, coffee shop that has Wi-Fi, somebody could fake being Starbucks uh, Wi-Fi and get in the middle and do this attack. Uh, but really, if that's what you're worried about, think about it from the attacker's point of view. He has to follow you around. He has to wait until you get to a place where you're using Wi-Fi. He has to come up with a plausible sounding Wi-Fi system for that particular location. Uh, then he has to get in the middle. Then he has to, to, to uh, hand off the keys. He's got to find a server uh, that actually does speak 40-bit encryption, which turns out to be uh, unless you're on Netflix it, it, and you're using a, a content distribution network, it's only a one in ten chance that, that there's going to be an ability to have that communication. That was before Freak was uh, um, uh, pushed, and, and I'm sure that there'll be fewer opportunities after that. Uh, and then he's going he for every site you visit where you establish a, 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 an SSL co connection, he's got another ten hours of key exhaustion to go through. And if at the end of all of that, he gets your Facebook-like account, he might find out something about you. But, boy, not much. Uh, and so after all this, it, it seems to me that, yes, it should be fixed. But the idea that it is a major vulnerability or that we should, uh, uh, we should treat it as, as, as a shocking uh, governmental uh, uh, intrusion into our affairs, 
I, I, I just can't buy. Uh, so that's 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 my quick um, assessment. Uh, I haven't seen this written um, because the press would rather tell the morality tale of uh, 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 in the foolishness of government when they try to uh, um, uh, make life easier for themselves. Um, uh, and so I welcome uh, feedback, user feedback, telling me where I'm wrong, uh, and I predict. Uh, this will, if nothing else, get some users uh, giving us feedback. Uh, and Andy, you're welcome also to uh, uh, when we get to you to uh, to talk about this if you choose to. Okay, all right. Well, let's let's move on to our uh, um, uh, interview with uh, uh, Andy Osmond. Uh, uh, Andy. Uh, uh, can you just tell us uh, where your DHS organization stands inside DHS and vis-a-vis uh, -vis the government in terms of cybersecurity? Absolutely, Stuart. Uh, so my organization is part of NPPD. Um, it's not the best acronym in the world, but we are the National uh, Programs and Protection Directorate. Think of us as the part of DHS whose job it is to make um, U.S. cyber and physical infrastructure more secure. Um, now, specifically on the cyber side, uh, our only goal is to make our customers more secure, and we do think of ourselves as a customer service organization, and our three customers are the private sector, uh, state, local, tribal, and territorial government, and the federal civilian agencies. Uh, and essentially, uh, we want to help our customers know how to secure their, their uh, infrastructure and how to implement best practices. We share information with them so they can adapt in the, those best practices to an adapting adversary, uh, and we help with incident response. And that's really roughly where we stand in the government. Now, um, we are not an intelligence organization, and we are not a law enforcement organization. Um, and so I think one of our strengths and particular roles is if we go on site, for example, to help a customer in an incident, our motivation is to get them back on their feet again and get the bad guys off their networks. We are not doing an investigation to try to catch the bad guys. Uh, now, we often go on site with the FBI or the Secret Service. They're doing the investigation. We're helping the customers get whole and get back on their feet again. Okay, that, that, that makes perfect sense, and that, that distinguishes you pretty clearly from NSA, which is an intelligence agency, and from the FBI, which does uh, uh, criminal investigations. Uh, so um, thinking of like the Sony uh, case, without getting into any uh, sensitive details, uh, uh, the what would have been the roles of NSA and FBI and DHS in, in a, a breach of that kind? So first, there was one other distinction I should have made, which is our jokes are better is also. So uh, just keep that in mind. And your jokes are better than mine? You're, you're, you're telling me your jokes? Oh, better than the FBI's. Better than yeah. the FBI or the NSA. So feel free to pass <laughs> that on the next time you talk to the FBI. <laughs> I, I will. I, I'm, I, I'm not sure the, uh, the NSA's sense of humor is really prominent uh, these days. But, uh, uh, you know, the, F, the, the, F, the FBI... Uh, uh, um, their jokes tend toward, um, uh, oh, no, you're not really under arrest. <laughs> <laughs> which, which creates nervous laughter, but it's not real laughter. Exactly. Uh, okay, so let's talk about any major incident. I don't want to speak the specifics of any particular right. incident, but any major incident that might involve all three of our agencies, um, what's the role that we would play? And let's actually say, let's say that, that Acme Power Company had an incident um, and, and sketch out how this all might work. So first... Um, maybe DHS, in our effort to protect the government itself, 
discovers a new bad guy. So we're protecting the perimeter of civilian government agencies, and we see something on the network, and we say, hey, that that shouldn't be there, and we investigate it. We discover it's a, it's a you know, nation-state adversary, and we learn how to catch him. And then we share that out to the private sector. So we, we found an indicator. We've shared that indicator with the private sector. Acme Power Company uses that indicator and finds an intrusion. And so then they call. They call us. Um, they might also call their local law enforcement. They might call the FBI. doesn't matter. It's on us and the government to get ourselves organized. So they report this intrusion, and we we coordinate with the FBI, and we say, all right, something's happening here. Um, how do we go out and talk to this company? And we say, well, the FBI has a field office there. FBI, why don't you go knock on Acme's door and offer assistance? And it turns out that Acme is, loves getting this assistance. Sorry, that Acme Power Company loves getting assistance. And so they say, great, please help us. Um, we want both a law enforcement investigation, and we'd love to have DHS's help as well. Um, we go on site. We are, um, we DHS are helping them find where in the network has the bad guy gone, and we're doing that in conjunction with the FBI. And we're also saying things like, look, if you want to find a very sophisticated adversary who's been on your network, if you want to bounce them off, first you've got to know where they are. And to know where they are, you, you have to watch them a while. And so let's work with you, Acme, and figure out what are your red lines, because we're going to not take action for a little bit as we watch this bad guy, but you have to tell us what the red lines are, where if the, if the bad guy crosses onto this system or takes this action, we got to move immediately. So we work with them to help find out those red lines. At the same time, uh, from much the same information, the FBI is looking at, you know, who is this bad guy? Where did they come from? We, either us or the FBI, might then do a additional request for help from the NSA where we say, you know, here's some information. Um, help us figure out more about this bad guy. You know, does this tell you anything that you can find intelligence on the bad guy? You name it. Um, we might be looking for technical assistance. We do, um, you know, I would say that our technical people are as skilled as the NSA's or FBI's technical people, but there are times when you have a tough technical problem, you just want multiple people looking at it. So we might do that. And so ultimately, we, we watch the bad guys for a while. We figure out where they are in the network. We then help the power company, um, you know, choose a moment in time where they maybe change all the passwords at once or disconnect from the network for an hour or two while they take some remediation actions. It gets the bad guys off the network. They implement some plans that we've helped them craft to get to a better place security-wise. And all that time, the FBI continues their investigation to try to learn out more, to learn more of what's going on and, and who the bad guy is and, and what we can do about it. And then right, we well, go home and take <laughs> the information we learned and we share it with the rest of the private sector. Got it. Okay, so I, I th that's very clear and very helpful, uh, uh, and it ties to some of the uh, legislative proposals and the executive orders that uh, that uh, relate to DHS. So, for example, the White House cybersecurity security legislation says we want to have we're, we're going to authorize DHS to provide advice to the private sector on cybersecurity. Uh, um, did you do you need that authority? Because uh, you, you just described something that sort of sounds like exactly what you'd want to have happen, and it didn't depend on new legislation. So, uh, first of all, as my wife will tell you, I don't need authority to provide advice. I'm happy to provide advice all the time. <laughs> she wishes somebody would revoke that authority. Um, but speaking more to DHS, uh, 
I think there's really two answers to that question. One, this is not about an authority to provide advice. We do provide advice. Uh, most companies are happy to receive it. That being said, there's some benefit, for example, to the NKIC authorization language we got in December that helps companies more explicitly know what is DHS's role in cybersecurity because anytime a company is talking to the government, particularly in the context of, of an incident, um, it turns out that general counsels are somewhat risk-averse individuals, and they get a little bit nervous. So having our authorities codified um, has helped us enormously. Now, okay. you know, when you speak to the White House's legislative proposal, you're really talking about threat indicators. Um, and that's really about, you know, the providing liability protection, tailored liability protection to companies to share information back with us, the government. I've got I've got two questions about that. Uh, uh, one one I I just got a uh, email from uh, Oren Kerr uh, uh, in which he uh, asked me whether I thought the uh, um, uh, that CISA, which uh, provides for um, immunity for sharing uh, threat indicators and uh, uh, countermeasures. Uh, was authorizing hackbacks. And I said, no, I think, uh, um, frankly, if you're going to share information about threat indicators, that's like sharing information about the symptoms of a particular disease. Uh, uh, but the first question people are going to ask is, well, what did you do to stop this new threat? And that, of course, is a countermeasure. Uh, that's like uh, saying, uh, I, I, thanks for describing the disease. Do you happen to have the vaccine? And you ought to have an ability to share both. Um, a, and, and so that's how I read uh, CISA on countermeasures. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that language, because I'm not sure that's uh, the same language in the uh, uh, um, in the administration proposal, but it struck me as completely plausible that you would want people to share information about how they defeated particular attacks. So I, I won't speak uh, specifically to CISA because, as you know, that that markup just happened last week, and so we're still digesting it. But um, what I will say in general is when people are talking about uh, you know, the Washington shorthand for this discussion is countermeasures. And there's really two different categories of things people are talking about. One is I sent you an indicator and you acted upon it. You know, maybe you just blocked your network from receiving traffic from a particular IP address. And then the other is something, you know, another meeting of countermeasures is something more aggressive than that, potentially as far as, you know, hacking back in. Now, I don't think anybody um, is proposing uh, anybody in, in, you know, in the actual bills being put forward either by the administration or Congress. I don't think anybody intends to authorize things like hacking back and breaking into another um, entity. Um, but I, what we have found when we've looked at that how we could craft language in this area on our side of things is it's really difficult to craft positive authorization language that doesn't have unintended consequences. Um, where you're, you're trying to enable somebody to just take advantage of an indicator, but by giving them blanket liability protection for that, you, you also give them liability protection for, you know, behavior that I think nobody would say is appropriate. Um, but we just, we literally have not been able to find a language to craft that actually solves that problem. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I can see that. That's what, and I think that is exactly the problem that uh, they're trying to solve in, in CISA. I, that's me talking, not you. Uh, I, but uh, I take your point. If you said uh, you're, you've got immunity for actions 
taken in response to the threat indicators to stop the threat, uh, you know, uh, uh, flying to Bulgaria and shooting the guy who's uh, uh, carrying out the attack would certainly put an end to the attack, but probably is not something you want to immunize. Uh, um, Okay, so my, here's my other question about threat indicators. Uh, the president made a big deal when he went out to uh, Silicon Valley about creating a uh, threat indicator, a, a, a CTIIC, a, a, a threat indicator center. Uh, um, and um, uh, Mike Rogers on this program uh, last week said, uh, you know, this must be the fourth or fifth or sixth um, uh, threat indicator center. Uh, um, and he kind of uh, raised questions about whether this was just redundant. And, and I wondered if you can explain what it is that you do that is different from what CTEC is going to do? Uh, well, first, as I, I noted earlier, everything we do, we do with panache and humor. So that's a distinction ah, okay. for DHS. But beyond that, um, one important point is this is the Cyber Threat um, Intelligence Integration Center. That's what the CTEC stands for. It is not mm-hmm. integrators. Um, and so it is not indicators. What, what we're looking at for the CTEC to do is to provide an integrated intelligence picture. So let me give you a concrete example. Um, right now, if I want to know, um, you know, a sort of strategic long-term picture of, uh, you know, what is bad guy nation state X doing, we have existing parts of the intelligence community, the National Intelligence Manager, the National Intelligence Council, who will work over some months and work with all the different intelligence agencies and give us that strategic integrated product. If, however, Right now, I, I am dealing with a bad guy who has broken into Acme Power Company, and I want to know, has this bad guy done things in other power companies? What do we think is motivating, you know, at a strategic level, this bad guy's behavior, and what at the operational level might be the implications of that strategic motivation? And things are changing on the ground rapidly, and I need to know it tomorrow, not in four months. Um, that's not what the National Intelligence Council does, and that's what the CTIC is crafted to do. It's crafted to be a supporting entity that helps the, the existing operational parts of the government. It gives us the integrated intelligence view to do our jobs more effectively. Okay, I, that makes makes perfect sense. Uh, and that's that's uh, you know I w- I would say frankly uh, as is always the case with the government they they tend to be uh, aspire to be fast followers and end up as slow followers of the private sector. Uh, uh, this is the kind of thing that Mandiant has been doing since 2010 or 11, certainly since they released that report on uh, Unit 31986 uh, uh, that uh, you know told you about who was doing these attacks, how they were doing them, and what their apparent motivations were. Obviously, uh, that's the most powerful and exciting and good thing that's happened in uh, cybersecurity in the last five years. And to bring to bear the intelligence capabilities that we have on um, exploring the motivations and the tools and the uh, organization of, of a variety of cyber attackers makes perfect sense. And I agree, agree with you. That's not the same as sending out malware descriptions. Yeah, and let me add two things to that. One is the CTIC will not be talking directly with the private sector. Right? We, you know, so it is an intelligence support function, and I think there's been some confusion about that. The other thing is, is I should be fair to the intelligence community. I can get those great reports right now that tell me what I talked about, but if it's an incident that's happening, you know, in the, immediately, I'll get one report from the FBI, one report from the NSA, one report from the CIA, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the goal here is 
It shouldn't be the operators who have to integrate the reports from each of those agencies. It should be ODNI integrating them and then sharing that integration with the operators. Yep, uh, absolutely. And, and most importantly, I think from the president's point of view with the White House, that I'm sure that this organization is basically going to be doing that principally for the White House and secondarily for the, the rest of the, the, the government. And, and maybe that's as it should. <laughs> you are, you are, you are a valued customer, uh, uh but you are not the valued customer. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, by the end of the uh, program, you will you will tell us the best cybersecurity joke that DHS is using these days. Oh, that's that's tough. Uh, you know, humor has to flow naturally, Stuart. I, I don't <laughs> use my All right, okay. Uh, I, I I I guess this is my opportunity to t- to tell the one uh, cybersecurity joke I know, which is that I could uh, I could tell you a joke about UDP, but you might not get it. Oh. <laughs> oh. oh. All right. So let me let's let's talk quickly about the um uh the executive order uh, uh which was heavily uh, uh dominated by the uh, tasks and authorities for uh um for DHS. Uh, this is the one on uh, information sharing. Uh, uh and it it has this peculiar, I think it's peculiar, uh, uh, provision saying we're going to set up a standards organization that will tell you how, tell um, the private sector what a good private sector sharing organization does and how it does it and what privacy standards it follows. Uh, and we're going to ask some third party to to do that. Uh, and, and I guess I, I, I wondered, is is there a clamor for this kind of, I, I'll call it quasi-regulation uh, uh, from uh, from the government? Because uh, it seems to me a lot of information sharing that works is much more informal than that. So first, you're being a little inflammatory there. I wouldn't call it quasi-regulation at all. I think uh, private sector develops best practices that are that have no certification regime in any way. It's a pretty far cry from uh, regulation. Um, but, uh, and, and I know, I'm shocked, shocked that you would be inflammatory, Stuart. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope, I, I hope I, I was mildly humorous, too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So moving to the substance of it, though. Uh, actually, yes, this executive order is really in response to two questions or, or two cries for help that we have heard repeatedly from the private sector over the last few years. And, and it's two separate problems they've come to us with. One of them have been organizations say, hey, you know, we understand the ISAC model. It seems to be working really well um, for, you know, various sectors, but it doesn't work for me. Um, I am a company um, who I have this great information sharing organization that I love, and I don't want a new one, but mine is geographic-based. It's about the city I'm in, and it's all the companies in the city. Or... Uh, you know, I don't really fit into a traditional critical infrastructure sector, so what should I, you know, I don't, I don't want to, there's no ISAC for me to join, and inventing my own ISAC for my sector doesn't really do anything for me. I'm not sure that sector-based is how I want to share information. And that's the first thing that the executive order does. It says, you know what, the whole sector model is really the government pushing forward our way of thinking to the private sector. But information sharing really works on trust, and trust comes in different shapes and sizes. So rather than us tell you, you know, you have to organize yourself along these lines, you tell us how you want to organize, and we'll work with you. 
And so that's the first thing that the, the order does. It creates this information sharing and analysis organization, ISAO or ISAO, which is, you know, ISACs are one example of an ISAO, but it says, listen, if you want to have a geographically based ISAO or you just want to take the 10 companies you want to share with and create an ISAO, no matter what sector or geography they fit in, that's on you. You, you come up with that, that's fine. So that's the first thing that the, the order does. The second thing the order does is these standards. And I'll tell you, just me personally in the last few years, I've had three different organizations or groups of companies come to me and say, all right, we hear you. Information sharing matters. ISACs are the model, so great. You know, this is before the EO. Great, we'll make an ISAC. Uh, what do we do next? And, and essentially, our, you know, they, they're saying, all right, we'll do this, so give us the best practices. Tell us what this should look like. You know, what, what makes a successful ISAC? Where's my ISAC or ISAO in a box? And we haven't had a great answer. And our answer to date has been, well, here's some ISACs that are uh, seem very well liked by their members. Why don't you talk to them and see what they're doing? And that's better than no answer. But essentially people have said, listen, we, we need to know if we're building one of these, we need to know what good looks like. Or if we're thinking about joining one of these, how do we – we don't even know what services we should be looking for. So how do I know whether this one is better than that one? Um, and that's what this effort is about. And the reason that we have a standards organization doing it is we don't want this to be the government saying, uh, you know, we came up with what's best for you. The idea of a standards organization is to get a neutral third party, not the government, to convene the private sector um, and and draw from the private sector what they think the best practices are and then uh, institutionalize those best practices. An ISAO is not going to be certified based on those best practices. They're, they're either going to say, hey, we're following them, or hey, we're not, or we're following these five and not that eight. It's entirely, you know, self, uh, whatever the ISAO says about themselves, the government is not doing any certification. Okay, I, 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 I can see that, I, um, and uh, I I agree with you that uh, uh, the government's ideas of the sectors was, um, you know, at some point you, you kind of run out of ability to make up new sectors and uh, you start dumping people into sectors they, they don't feel they belong in. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that the law firms that have started to think about uh, uh, sharing information have ended up as sort of a subgroup of the financial services ISAC, uh, um, which makes a lot of sense because the firms that are doing this are firms whose clients are financial services organizations who really want the firms to do this. Uh, uh, and it may be that uh, law firms, rather than um, uh, sort of having a, uh, a snake pit uh, ISAO of all lawyers, will end up uh, uh, dragged into multiple uh, uh, client-based uh, uh, ISACs or ISAOs. And if that's what makes sense for the law firms, you know, what this EO says is we, the government, are agnostic. You know, you figure out what makes sense for you, and we will work with you. All right. So, a last question. Uh, uh, I know DHS uh, has a reputation for ineffectuality, uh, or at least uh, there are a lot of people who will say that about DHS. And, uh, frankly, uh, um, it has it's a lot better, but uh, there were times when it deserved that reputation. So, let me ask, um, with that as an intro, what is it that you would point to that you're most proud of, that you think uh, is most at odds with that? Um, uh, public image? 
Yeah, so I would say I think we used to have a reputation for ineffectuality. I don't think that's true anymore. Yeah, and you're kind enough not to say that that was when I was in government and working at DHS. <laughs> not at all. I mean, look, we were given a we were given a job that we had to build capacity for it. It takes some time to build capacity, and and we are far from perfect, and we have much more we need to build. Um, but what I tell you that I think we're doing really well right now. Um, we're doing really well on single incident incident response. You know, when a company has a problem, we go out to help. We get great feedback. They they love the support we provide. We leave them much more secure than when we found them. On information sharing, um, we do a really good job in, in two areas. One of them is uh, sort of analytical reports, and the other is our um, particular program called Cyber Security Information Sharing and Collaboration Program, um, which right now is 115 entities, many of them ISACs, but, you know, uh, near 100 of them companies themselves, where we do share threat indicators um, that are formatted to be machine-readable. We're not machine-sharing them yet. Um, and people are really happy with that program. Uh, and then finally, uh, what we're doing with our tools that really help on the government side, um, government agencies out. The Einstein program, Einstein 1 and 2 are finding intrusions all the time, which is, you know, both good and bad. We wish we weren't having them, but it's better to find them. Einstein 3A, which is the intrusion prevention system, is now available as of just a, a few weeks ago, became available to half of the civilian government. Um, people who use it, you know, the, the agencies that use it love it. Um, now we need to increase the adoption from the folks to whom it's available for. Yes. I suppose you're never going to say State Department, but I can say State Department uh, would be good to uh, uh, to start using it. I'm not going to ever uh, call out <laughs> any specific agency. We are, we are like confessors. You bring your sins to us. We, we help you uh, move on from them, I guess. Um it, we don't even make you pay penance, um, so so I, we don't we don't name particular private sector or government agencies. But essentially, the list of things I could tell you we're doing a good, good job on uh, is really long because I think we're doing great stuff. But you know, we're what we're doing now would have blown our minds four years ago. But as you know, the the problem is bigger, um, and so you know we're we're keeping pace with the threat, but but just barely. And so even though we're we're doing incredible stuff that we couldn't even have imagined. Four years ago, it's it's not enough. We got to uh, double on our pace and, and just really keep making good things happen. Yeah, I, I think that, that that sounds exactly right. Uh, uh, catching up with or getting close to caught up with the bad guys is going to take an enormous amount of constant effort. Uh, and uh, uh, but uh, you're at least you're at least in the race at this point, uh, which was not true. Yeah. All right. So, uh, any uh, at this stage, we usually ask whether anybody has a uh, uh, public event or a speech or some document or a, uh, report coming out. To, is there anything you want to point to in the next week or two that uh, people should be looking for? Uh, nothing in the next week or two, but I will say at the RSA conference, which is happening at the end of uh, April, um, we have a lot of good speeches from our folks uh, and panels out there at RSA, and we'll uh, we'll be announcing some some great steps forward. So, uh, I'd, I'd encourage folks to uh, pay attention to what comes out at RSA. All right, that sounds that sounds great. And I guess I sh I should say uh, on the question of how to pronounce I S A O, you might want to think about that again. I, I I'll give you a biblical biblical site to uh, 
uh, uh, Malachi uh, uh, one uh, talking about uh, uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh, the Lord says, "Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals." Uh, you really don't want to have a, uh, a pronunciation that gets even close to Esau. Uh, um, so you might want to think whether uh, you're going to reconsider the actual pronunciation of ISAO. So that's a pretty uh, pretty strong uh, criticism that I, I don't have much to rebut other than to say, for once, the government has come to a complete universal consensus on something. <laughs> well, that's because they all want to leave you to the desert jackals. <laughs> All right. So as a reminder, the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast is now open to feedback. Uh, send uh, your uh, abuse, your suggestions for interview candidates, your uh, uh, favorite cybersecurity jokes to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, and if you'd like to leave a message by phone, uh, Andy, when you finally think of a good cybersecurity joke, uh, uh, you can call 1-202-862-5785 and leave a message and we'll play it on the air. And this has been episode 58 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Next week, we're going to be joined by Richard Beitlick, uh, who's the chief security strategist at FireEye Mandiant. Uh, and after him, we'll have a, a Jason Brown, who's the special agent in charge of the criminal investigative division at uh, uh, the Secret Service. And Dmitry Alperovich from CrowdStrike, who has been on the show before and is always a pleasure to listen to. We hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. Thank you.